And in indigenous cultures, you listen to women, especially your elders, depending on your culture. And it, it was just really striking how unfriendly it was not to listen. And so I just brought up all these things I just brought up with you, biases and how it's not friendly to talk over somebody. So I try and listen as a friend. And then the, the other thing that I try and do is, is set aside my biases. For instance, your girlfriend is mean, so I don't like her. Uh, no, that's that's my bias. You know, I'll try and set that aside. And she's mean to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, it's not an indictment was, of her whole character. <laughs> yeah, she has mean moments. Mm-hmm, she's sure. Not always mean, but uh, just. When you're friendly to someone, then you don't you don't just say, "Oh, they're mean." You say, "Well, I've had these mean times, and I'm trying to understand how you could be there because I want to be there for you." Yeah. And that's again, friendship is being there for them. So, thank you there for being there for us. I love you guys. Thank you. Thank you, you so much. All right, that's we so are. Nice. That's wonderful. Great advice. I and I love I I love good advice, especially yeah. about friendship, because like you said, we feel like we just don't don't have that. And we yeah. do have to, um, we have to do, Wrap it I, up. I can't find the full, the extended version, it's okay. so we have to do it all the way up to 30 seconds. Oh, okay. 30 <laughs> seconds. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, well, uh, oh, like Althea said, we are going to go on a short summer break. Yeah. Yay. Uh, go roast um, at the river. Yep. And we'll be back in September. Yep. With our uh, blue jeans. Yep. Back to school. Yep. Back to school shopping at the dollar store is <laughs> happening. Yeah. We'll have a whole dollar store update in September <laughs> about what we're up to. And we want to thank you all so much for listening and for supporting and for being good friends. And we hope you have a great rest of your summer. Oh, we hope you have a great rest of your summer. This has been The Gap on KBU. I'm Althea. That's Tammy. Um, And we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Goodbye. FM. You don't know. Cable Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Kendall Northwest Launch Party on Thursday, July 30th from 5.45 p.m. to 11 p.m. at Jaja PDX in Portland. Kendall Northwest is a new circus and fine arts festival, including intro courses in the fire arts, fire spinning, live music, and competitive circus games. That's the Kendall Northwest Lunch Party on Thursday, July 30th from 5.45 p.m. to 11 p.m. at Jaja PDX, 819 Southeast Taylor Street in Portland. That's the Kendall Northwest Lunch Party on Thursday, July 30th from 5.45 p.m. to 11 p.m. at Jaja PDX, 819 Southeast Taylor Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. and welcome to another episode of Arab Voices coming to you from the studios of KPFT Houston since 2002. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. This show is syndicated and it airs on other radio stations in different cities in the US and Europe. In this episode of Arab Voices, I will talk about the recent visit of President Biden to occupied Palestine and Saudi Arabia and the best thing that came out of it, maybe. I will also interview Ruba Sawaya, president of the Houston Palestine Film Festival, about the upcoming festival, and I will also air the remarks of Professor Saad Jali on the topic, are U.S. news organizations getting better or worse in their Middle East reporting? That talk was delivered at the 2022 annual Israel Lobby Conference. As most of you know, President Biden visited occupied Palestine last week 
He met with Israeli occupation leaders and Palestinian leaders. Then he went to Saudi Arabia and attended the Gulf Cooperation Council, GCC countries, plus Egypt, Iraq, and Jordan, where he and other leaders spoke. Here's my take on that visit and what came out of it. First, there was nothing surprising about that visit and nothing was new. Maybe except one, and I'll mention that shortly. President Biden's visit was nothing more than the normal commitment to Israeli war crimes, atrocities, occupation, apartheid, murder, yes, including the murder of American citizens by Israel, like Shirin Abu Akhla, and the Zionist settler colonial project in Palestine. Oh, and one more. President Biden reiterated he loves being a Zionist. But President Biden, we already know that. By your actions, you don't really need to say it anymore because actions speak louder than words. And for our listeners, if you were surprised by President Biden's remarks when he said last week during his recent trip, I say again, you need not be a Jew to be a Zionist. Well, you shouldn't be surprised. Listen to what President Biden has been saying about Israel and Zionism over the years. And this is a compilation of these statements by Middle East Eye online news organization. It's about time we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel in this body, for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made. None. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. The second part is, people should understand by now, this should be crystal clear, that Israel, Israel is the single greatest strength America has in the Middle East. I always say to my friends when they say those things to you, I say, imagine our circumstance in the world. Were there no Israel, how many battleships would there be? How many troops would be stationed? You know, I used to say, early on when I was a kid, I'd say, when I was a young senator, I'd say, if I were a Jew, I'd be a Zionist. I am a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. Progress occurs in the Middle East when everyone knows there's simply no space between the United States and Israel. There is no space between the United States and Israel when it comes to Israel's security. There is only one nation, only one nation in the world that has unequivocally, without hesitation, and consistently confronted the efforts to delegitimize Israel. At every point in our administration, at every juncture, we've stood up on the legitimacy, on behalf of the legitimacy of the state of Israel. The security of Israel and the United States is inextricably tied. And we will never, ever, ever abandon Israel out of our own self-interest. I also emphasize what I've said throughout this conflict. The United States fully supports Israel's right to defend itself against indiscriminate rocket attacks from Hamas and other Gaza-based terrorist groups that have taken the lives of innocent civilians in Israel. Now, when President Biden said during his visit, quote, the U.S. commitment to the goal of a two-state solution has not changed, unquote, what he really meant by that is the status quo continues. And that is the ongoing Israeli occupation, its war crimes, murder, colony expansion, home demolitions, forced displacement of Palestinians, Basically, the ongoing daily Israeli atrocities continue, and the Palestinians must stay quiet and will give $200 million to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, UNRWA, and will also pledge $100 million to the East Jerusalem Hospital Network that serve Palestinians in Jerusalem. So... Go on, Israel, with whatever you want to do, just like you have been for so many years, with full impunity. And Palestinians, if you want something called peace, and maybe some kind of state, shut up 
and accept what Israel has been doing, is doing, and will continue to do to you on daily basis. This is a summary of President Biden's visit to occupied Palestine. That's how I saw it. But wait, there is one more, and I personally think that is a good one. President Biden announced rolling out 4G digital connectivity to both the occupied Gaza Strip and the occupied West Bank. And I say that is good news. Why? Because Palestinians with 4G internet speed can then send and share pictures and videos with the world way much faster than before. And I'm talking about pictures and videos of the daily Israeli atrocities, war crimes, extrajudicial executions, attacks on journalists and medics, land confiscation, colonial expansion, home demolitions, theft of natural resources, and a whole lot more. So, thank you, Mr. President. As for the trip to Saudi Arabia, there were many speculations about that visit. Was it about oil prices? an increase in oil production, normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel? Or was it about Iran? One thing for sure, it was not about forcing Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates to stop their catastrophic war and blockade of Yemen. After all, the U.S. has been supporting that war and funding it for many years. Nor was it about human rights violations in these countries and definitely was not about Saudi Arabia's murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. In summary, again, the status quo continues for the U.S. administration and its foreign policy towards the Middle East, regardless of who is in power. You're listening to Arab Voices, coming to you from the studios of KPFT Houston since 2002. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. The annual Houston-Palestine Film Festival, one in less than a handful held in the United States, is scheduled to take place July 22nd and 23rd in Houston, Texas. Joining us to talk about the upcoming Houston-Palestine Film Festival is Ruba Sawaya, president of the Houston-Palestine Film Festival. Ruba, welcome to Arab Voices. Thank you very much, Saeed. Glad to be here. It's good to have you on the show. So after 14 years of annual Houston-Palestine Film Festival, COVID-19 decided to give the organizers a break. And now after two years of pause, the festival is back. Tell us about it, please. And maybe first a brief background for those who may not be familiar with the Houston-Palestine Film Festival. Absolutely. So founded in 2007, the Houston Palestine Film Festival is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit with a mission to share Palestinian culture through the art of film. So why it's important is because it really enables access to extraordinary stories about the lives of Palestinians. And it's the only festival in Texas that brings Palestinian films to Houston's diverse community of 6 million people. You know, that's interesting. You mentioned the only one in Texas, uh, which is a huge state, and we have very large cities in in, uh, Texas, Dallas and Austin. This show is actually syndicated in San Antonio at uh, KEPG 96.5 FM in San Antonio. So for the folks in San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, this would be a great trip to Houston to attend the Houston-Palestine Film Festival on Friday and Saturday. And I even know... A family one time drove from Louisiana. This shows, by the way, syndicated in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They came here to attend the Houston-Palestine Film Festival. And there is only very few throughout the United States in very few cities where there is Palestine Film Festival, right? It is. It's, it's actually pretty challenging. There isn't all that much visibility. Um, Boston has a really good one that they put together every year. And so we're really excited that we are able to finally come back after that two-year break with COVID because you do have a very um, diverse group of people that come from all over multiple states to view it because there aren't that many that, that, that are happening internationally or nationally within the U.S. And there are so many movies out there about Palestine or different topics produced, made by Palestinian filmmakers and others. At the end of the day, most of them really, they have a message behind them. But tell us first about how do you go, and I know you all have several committees and so on, 
How does the Houston Palestine Film Festival go about selecting which movies to show at the Houston Palestine Film Festival? So for us, we do a couple of different things. We typically send out a call for film submissions via Film Freeway. And the reason that we like to do that is because it enables independent artists an opportunity to get nominated. Um, in addition, every member of the executive committee also nominates movies based on recent films that have come out over the last year. We really do try to focus on selecting movies that are consistent with our mission. We take into account the artistic value of the film and the messages that are being conveyed. All the films that get nominated are viewed by the executive committee. Passionate discussions are held, and then we take a vote, um, letting the democratic process really drive the selection of what films get aired. Very interesting. So several movies have been chosen already for this year, and this festival will be held uh, on July 22nd and 23rd. So tell us about what is planned for this year, what movies and when will they be shown? So selections for this year um, include several award-winning films, which we're really excited about. And we were actually able to get interviews set up virtually with two directors, Darin Salam, who won the 2022nd Jerry Award for her incredible film, Farha, and then director Amin Naife, who won the BNL People's Choice Award for 200 Meters. So July 22nd, starting at 7 p.m., we're actually going to do um, From the Mountain, which is a short. It is, uh, you know, well known for crafting extraordinary stories of justice. Faisal Atrash doesn't disappoint. So his latest short film is about a fighter who's battling to keep the flame of revolution alive while in exile from uh, his beloved Syria. Right after that, immediately on the 22nd at 7.30, we're going to air Farha. So based on true events, Darin Salam's Farha is an incredible film about the Palestinian Nakhba uh, viewed through the eyes of a 14-year-old girl with an uncompromising determination to survive. So she witnesses the terrors of war and dispossession consuming her home, and that's honestly probably one of my favorite films. It was very, very moving. At 9.15, right after that screening, we actually have a Q&A session with the... With the uh, producer Doreen Salam for about 30 minutes. So that's the schedule and the lineup on Friday. On Saturday, the 23rd, we are going to air Fida'iyin, which is an incredible documentary that tells the story of George's Abdullah, the longest held political prisoner in Europe. Uh, 7.30 p.m. on Saturday, we have a uh, the viewing for 200 meters written and directed by Amin Naifa. And again, that one was the winner of the BNL People's Choice Award. It's a story about um, a father and a fight to preserve his identity and the infinite risks that father is willing to take for his son. So that's that's the lineup for this weekend. Very interesting. And I know you have more information and even trailers about these uh, listed on your website, www.hpff.org. Yes. Certainly looking forward to attending the festival, the Houston Palestine Film Festival, to watch these movies. Perfect. You know, you mentioned George Abdullah, that uh, film Fida'iyin. He's a Lebanese man uh, committed to the Palestinian struggle, uh, very popular during the Civil War, actually, uh, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, yep. and the longest held political prisoner in Europe. So, so that is really going to be uh, uh, an, an interesting movie to to watch and attend Fida'iyin, George's Abdullah's fight. So they start on Friday, July 22nd, on that Friday at 7 p.m., correct? Starting correct. with that short you mentioned from the mountain, followed by uh, Farha. And is that special guest appearance by Darin Salam, is she going to be in person in Houston or via Zoom, or how is that planned? It will be via Zoom. Via Zoom. Be so via there will be a discussion, kind of live conversation with her about that movie, correct? Yes, and, and the opportunity for the audience to ask questions, absolutely. Excellent. And there is another person you mentioned also that uh, will also be uh, appearing uh, with the movie 200 Meters. Yes. I mean, Naif, Naifa? Yes. Naifa, yeah. The, the, uh, pr the, the director for that film is also going to be able to join us also via Zoom for, uh, via Zoom for 200 Meters. 
This is great. And that is on Saturday, July 23rd. So 7 p.m. on Friday, July 22nd, they start two, two movies. And then Saturday, July 23rd, they start at 5 p.m. Yes. The first one at 5 p.m. and then the second one at 7.30. I noticed this year it's a little bit less movies than in previous years, obviously. I know you mentioned there's always challenges to organize these things. But regardless, these are very selective movies. You know, it would be very interesting, really, to attend and watch these uh, movies. Tell us about the location. Where are these movies going to be shown? So the movies are going to air at Match. It's the Midtown Arts and Theater Center in Houston on 3400 Main Street downtown. Excellent. Very popular area right there. Any last word, any other information you'd like to share with our listeners about the Houston Palestine Film Festival or these upcoming movies? I'd really like to encourage our Houston community to join us this weekend. These films, we've worked very hard to select films that tell extraordinary stories of Palestinians. Um, The stories are about incredible resilience and family devotion and justice. And I promise you they will leave an impact that will stay with you long after you've left the theater. So I hope they'll join us. And Sayed, I'd like to thank you very much for giving us an opportunity to share festival details and tell viewers a little bit more about HPFF's mission. And then the one last thing I will say is if uh, you'd like to purchase tickets, they are at hpff.org for the organization. Excellent. And I know the the list of the movies is is posted there also on the website, hpff.org. And we have a link to it on our website, arabvoices.net. Well, I greatly appreciate your time. Ruba Sawaya, president of the Houston Palestine Film Festival, to update us and tell us about the upcoming Houston Palestine Film Festival scheduled to be held in Houston July 22nd and July 23rd at Match in downtown Houston. That's the Midtown Arts and Theater Center, Houston. We greatly appreciate it, Ruba. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Said. Have a wonderful week. You too. You're listening to Arab Voices, coming to you from the studios of KPFT Houston since 2002. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Saad Jali, professor of communication at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the founder and executive director of the Media Education Foundation, whom I interviewed live on Arab Voices before, spoke on the topic, are U.S. news organizations getting better or worse in their Middle East reporting? He delivered that talk at the annual 2022 Israel Lobby Conference held at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on March 4, 2022, co-hosted by the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs and the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. I'm going to air now his remarks. Let's listen in, and the voice you will hear first is that of Dale Spurzanski, Managing Editor of the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, Introducing Professor Saad Jolly. Saad Jolly is a professor of communi- was a professor of communication at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the founder and executive director of the Media Education Foundation. He's the producer of over 40 documentaries and the author of six books and numerous scholarly and popular articles. Many of you have probably seen his 2016 film, The Occupation of the American Mind, which was... That's right. That film was narrated by Roger Waters and focuses on pro-Israel public relations efforts within the United States and how the U.S. government is working within the United States to influence American media coverage of Israel. Today, he will be discussing whether American news organizations are getting better or worse in the quality, balance, and accuracy of their Middle East reporting. Thank you so much. Um, Actually, just to follow up to Radhika's presentation, she mentioned this panel (laughs) that um, I'd organized at UMass uh, with, uh, with Roger, with Mark Lamont Hill, Linda Sarsour, uh, Dave Zyron, and there was a lawsuit against it. Um, and they really, I mean, when you organize these events, I really think it's up to people who have some protection to take the, to take the lead on this. This should not be up to students. Students should not be on the front lines of these things. They're the most vulnerable. The people who should be taking the risk, and it's not you know, there might be some risk, but it's like on a university should be tenured professors. In fact, and when that happened to, when, when that happened to us, 
Um, you know, I was on the front line. I, I got in touch with, um, with Roger, with, with Mark, with Linda, with Dave Zyron, and within 15 minutes they had all agreed to put their names on a lawsuit or to, 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 to fight this. Um, so the, those, of us who have, those of us who have some power in these kinds of institutions, I think we, we need, to, need to use it. I also learned a great deal about what puts pressure on university, professor, on university presidents. Um, I've been teaching at UMass for a while, and there's been lots of complaints about me from the kind of the lunatic right, you know, from the Zionist right, from, from camera, et cetera. And the, my, my, the university president uh, kind of loved that. He, he was like, oh, I can, I can you know, protect you against, um, against camera, against his love. And he was, but the moment, the moment the pressure came from donors, the moment the pressure came from donors, he caved. And so it taught me a lot that the pressure is not just it's right-wing pressure, it's pressure from people that really matter. It's pressure, as always, uh, with money. Um, anyway, that's, that's, I just, that was just provoked by what Radica said about our event. Again, I'm on the uh, unenviable position of you know, speaking of the last session, which means almost everything I wanted to talk about has been talked about already. Uh, and it means I have to follow people, you know, like Gideon, uh, like Hanan Ashrawi, we have to share a stage with Roger Waters. It's uh, it's not enviable, but I'll hopefully there'll be a few things I can say that might be might be interesting. Um, the Chinese philosopher Confucius was once asked what he would do if he ever if he were ever to rule the state. They, someone asked him, "What would you do if you, if you were in charge?" And he answered, "Quote: He would rectify the language." rectify the language. That is, he would control the categories through which people perceive the world. As we are a symbolic and storytelling species, something always stands between us and our understanding of the world. That something is language and stories and culture. If you can control the categories of thought, then you don't need soldiers and police on street corners to control a population. You can control them in their own heads, through their own imaginations. As Gore Vidal, uh, where I got this story from, about Confucius from, wrote in this article, he said, quote, as societies grow decadent, the language grows decadent too. Words are used to disguise, not to illuminate action. You liberate a city by destroying it. Actually, I'm sure that's what Russian propaganda is doing right now in terms of how it's reporting. Ukraine. Words are used to confuse so that election time people will solemnly vote against their own interests. This rectification of the language is of course the central insight of American public relations. Ivy Lee, uh, the first major proponent of what came to be known as the industry of public relations, once declared, and I actually think it's true, and in a philosophical sense, he once declared, there is no such thing as the truth. Quote, he said, the effort to state an absolute fact is simply an attempt to give you my interpretation of the facts. Because something always stands between us and our, and our perception of reality. So it is always up for grabs. Similarly, Edward Bernays, um, who has been credited with creating the modern public relations industry was very open that rational elites had to keep the emotional and unruly rabble under control by use of propaganda. He, he thought propaganda was a great term, was a great word. In fact, it's the title of one of his books. In fact, he often used to say, he said, I hope what I'm doing, because he believed that elites had to control the unruly mob. They weren't capable of, in, in a democracy, you can't let the mob rule. Uh, and he often used to say, I hope what I'm doing is propaganda and not impropaganda. The Israel lobby has learned the lesson of Confucius very well and has put it into practice in a way that should be taught in public relations schools. They really should. They should, they should, they should be a required, uh, required study of public relations schools. They have turned, they've managed to turn reality on its head. They've been successful in framing a vicious, settler colonial program of violence, eviction, and occupation into a defensive project of civilization against barbaric Muslim terrorist hordes. <clears throat> As I said, it should be taught in PR schools. 
you can turn reality on its head. Now, it wasn't always like this. It's always good to take a little bit of a, a historical perspective, um, especially if you look back to American media. Up until the early 1980s, when there was some form of what could be called journalism actually existing in the US, that no longer is the case, but then when there was some form of journalism that existed, coverage of Israel occasionally turned very critical, especially the, during the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon, uh, the, the bombing of Beirut, and the ensuing massacres of civilians at the refugee camps of Shabra and Shatila. We play the first Palestinian guerrilla targets in Lebanon today. From the sky, the howl of Israeli jets, bombing and bombing. Tonight, Israel has never been closer to, nor more in control of an Arab capital. In the summer of 1982, Israel invaded neighboring Lebanon in an attempt to drive the Palestinian Liberation Organization out of its encampments on the southern border with Israel. Israeli officials justified the attack as a defensive action required to take out terrorists. But as the story played out on American television, a different narrative began to emerge, one that presented Israel as the aggressor. What in the world is going on? Israel's security problem on its border is 50 miles to the south. What's an Israeli army doing here in Beirut? The answer is that we are now dealing with an imperial Israel, which is solving its problems in someone else's country. World opinion be damned. The Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982 was a watershed. It was Israel breaking out beyond its immediate region to aggressively attack another country, and it was a bit of a shock to many people. Israel was always that gallant little underdog democracy fighting for survival against all the odds. Now the Israelis have annexed East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights settled down more or less permanently on the West Bank and occupied close to half of Lebanon. In the interests of self-defense, that gallant little underdog Israel has suddenly started behaving like the neighborhood bully. By the time the war was over, the Israeli military would kill 17,000 Lebanese and Palestinians and wound another 30,000, almost all of them civilians. In West Beirut, hospitals are so taxed with the injured that they have become specialized. This center takes only burn victims of phosphorus shells. Shrapnel cases, concussions and fractures are directed to other facilities. Such coverage is unthinkable today. Nothing, no coverage of the various attacks on Gaza came close to this level of critique. Uh, I imagine, I mean, it's actually close to what the, the mainstream media is now doing with, uh, with Ukraine, because the victims are the right kind of victims. The answer to this, from Israel's perspective, the answer to this negative coverage was not, of course, a change in policy, but a change in the rectification of the language, it was a change in the definitions and the categories of thought. One of the lessons of Confucius, of public relations, is that reality does not pour into people's heads, that our perception of reality goes through the categories of language that reflect the categories of those humans who can control that process. That is what cultural power is about, is to control those categories, to occupy people in their own imaginations. To devise, so after 1982 and after this coverage, to devise appropriate strategies, in 1984, a conference was organized in Jerusalem by supporters of the Zionist enterprise. Two years after the Lebanon invasion, the American Jewish Congress sponsored a conference in Jerusalem to devise a formal public relations strategy known in Hebrew as Hasbara. Participants included PR and advertising executives, media specialists, journalists, and leaders of major Jewish groups. According to a brochure from the Congress, no single event brought home the need for a more effective Hasbara or information program more persuasively than the 1982 war in Lebanon and the events that followed. As one conference participant put it, Israel is no longer perceived to be Little David, but Goliath steamrolling across the map. The primary aim of the conference was to develop strategies to spin unpopular Israeli policies and to counter negative press coverage by shaping the media frame in advance. News doesn't just jump into a camera, the conference delegate said. It's directed, it's managed, it's made accessible. 
Israel-based advertising executive Martin Fenton would put it in even more blunt terms. Propaganda is not a dirty word, he said. Face it, we are in the game of changing people's minds, of making them think differently. To accomplish that, we need propaganda. The conference was chaired by U.S. advertising executive Carl Spielvogel, the legendary ad man who created the highly acclaimed Miller Lite beer ads in the 1970s. The choice of Spielvogel makes perfect sense. He's known as a master of image inversion and rebranding. The ad man responsible for transforming Miller Lite, which had been viewed before as a woman's beer, into a manly beer that tough guys would drink. But the best part is that it tastes so great. <laughs> the best part is it's less filling. Nah, it tastes great. Less his job with Israel would require the same kind of rebranding, only in the opposite direction, to help soften the image of a country that's coming to be seen as a bully. So he recommends creating a cabinet post dedicated exclusively to explaining policy, whose job would not be setting policy, but presenting it in the most attractive way to the rest of the world. Classic PR is to say the problem is not the policy, it's the presentation. When the policies are so reprehensible that many people become critical, rather than acknowledge there's anything wrong with the policy, there's a doubling down on the PR effort. Okay, so I should mention um, that this is uh, that these are clips from our film, The Occupation of the American Mind, um, and the narration you hear is from Roger, who is not in the room right now, but you can his voice is uh, his voice is still here. Um, and there's nothing accidental about this Hasbara or propaganda. There's nothing accidental about it. It's not it's not it's not thought of casually. When Israel has committed another, yet another atrocity against the Palestinian people, the frame and language we hear in the mainstream media is the result of intensive research about what words work the best. Nothing accidental about it. We should be clear uh, that the talking points that circulate in the corporate media have been tested out with focus groups. A number of well-funded public relations organizations have emerged within the United States to help Israel justify its policies, especially the occupation and settlements, on security grounds. One of these groups is the Israel Project. In 2009, the Israel Project turned to conservative pollster and rebranding expert Frank Luntz. Frank Luntz. This is the man that reframed the estate tax as the death tax healthcare reform as government takeover of healthcare. Now, some critics have called Luntz a spin doctor who manipulates public emotion, but Luntz would reframe that as Fox News analyst. The Israel Project hired him to determine which talking points used by Israeli and U.S. officials over time have been most effective in maintaining American sympathy for Israel. Luntz wrote up his recommendations in a 2009 report called the Global Language Dictionary. If you want to understand how the propaganda works, especially in the US, you need to read the Luntz document. He's really clear that the occupation and especially the settlements are a problem. And he points to polls that show a large majority of Americans actually think that Israel should retreat to the 67 borders. In fact, he says, when you talk about land in terms of 67, you completely flip American sentiment against you. But, and this is his solution, if you bring up the danger of terrorism, you win back the support. The key, Lund says, is the claim that the fight is over ideology, not land, about terror, not territory. In fact, it's these three words, terror, not territory, uh, that we need to understand uh, how, how Israeli propaganda works. Terror, that is, <laughs> territory is about history. Territory is about history. I once had a student tell me that the most radical class I taught was where I went over the actual history using maps of the conflict. That once you know the facts, it's very clear what the just and moral position should be, especially if you're neutral within this. Uh, that is why the history is made out to be so complex that only experts can, can speak. The reality, of course, is that the so-called Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, is the simplest and most straightforward in the modern world to explain. If you just tell the story of territory, if you, te if you keep 
if you just tell the history, <laughs> if you stick essentially to the facts. So Lunt says, this is his advice, he says, avoid history, avoid facts, focus instead on terrorism. In the same report, uh, Luntz goes on to outline strategies for how to deal with horrific civilian casualties uh, that will in inevitably make their way before the eyes of the American public. In 2012, and again in 2014, Israel launched two more devastating attacks on Gaza. Israel can saturate the media with its spokespeople, but there's still the problem of massive Palestinian casualties showing up on television screens. You can't make those images go away. An Israeli official actually said, in the war of pictures we lose, so you need to correct, explain, or balance it in other ways. Here again, the Lunt document spells out which talking points have been most effective in spinning the brutal reality of Palestinian casualties. He says the first thing the pro-Israeli spokespeople should do is to express empathy for the innocent victims. Unfortunately, innocents do get hurt, and we, we really grieve that. We're sad for every civilian casualty. The entire situation is, is tragic. Once you've done that, Lund says, you also have to get people to empathize with Israelis by describing what life is like for them, living in constant fear of Hamas rocket attacks. So again and again, we hear the focus-tested phrase, that the rockets are raining down on Israel. We have thousands of rockets raining down on our civilians. Rockets were raining down on Israel. Any advertising executive will tell you the essence of propaganda is repetition. Rockets raining down on southern Israel. Rockets raining down on Israel. Well, Hamas rockets rain down on Israeli border towns. Then ask the American people, what would you do? So what would you do in the United States? Can you imagine um, what America would do if it were facing a similar threat. We always try to ask you the question we ask ourselves. What will you do? What would you do? What would you do if more than 3,000 rockets had been fired on your cities? What would you do? 3,000 rockets. What would you do if terrorists were tunneling under your frontier? What would you do if three kids are kidnapped because of a tunnel network? What sort of question is this? Of course, anybody would act to defend themselves against unprovoked aggression, but it is a question that is completely devoid of any context. What drives the society to a point where after multiple devastating wars, they continue to resist with these most feeble methods? They don't want you to ask that question. They don't want you to ask what is behind this? What's the history here? Who are these people? Where did they come from? Why are they so desperate? No, they want you to understand Israeli behavior. Israeli behavior is always characterized as a reaction to unprovoked violence. The story never starts with the, with the violence of the occupation. The story always starts with Hamas rockets. In fact, if Hamas did not exist, Israel would have to invent it. So it could be provoked to respond, as Yusef Manir says at the end, in this most feeble of ways. Okay, it really matters where history starts, where the story starts. If it starts with the violence of the, of, the, of the occupation, if it starts with the violence of the occupation, then what the Palestinians are engaged in is legitimate resistance. If, however, it starts with Hamas rockets, then what the Palestinians are doing is terrorism. One of those stories, it works much better for Israel than the other one. The function of PR is to put this story, that the responsibility for the violence lies with the Palestinians, to put those ideas and your words into someone else's mouth so that it does not appear as your speech. That is the essence of public relations. It is how it is different from advertising. Advertising is visible and it's clear who is speaking. The best PR is invisible because you have got someone else, in this case, uh, hapless and hopeless American journalists, to mouth your words. And they don't, I'm not even sure they know what they're doing. Look at the next clip. So you end up with reporting that gives way more priority and weight to the official Israeli perspective than to the Palestinian one. 
Look at how American media covered Israel's 2014 attack on Gaza. A keyword search of all the major networks showed that over the course of the 51-day assault, Israel's ongoing military siege and blockade of Gaza were barely mentioned compared to the thousands of times Hamas rocket attacks on Israel were mentioned. Why is Hamas launching missiles into population centers of Israel? The basic propaganda frame is built into the very assumptions journalists bring to the table. Since Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2005, 8,000 rockets have been fired from Gaza into Israel. This is how propaganda works. It works by getting your words in the mouths of other people, especially the mouths of supposedly objective media commentators. I'm wondering, though, whether you're outraged by the conduct of Hamas, starting the conflict by firing rockets, building tunnels to kill and kidnap Israelis, being more than willing to sacrifice Palestinian lives by embedding them into, into their own kind of arsenal and using them as Israel contends as human shields. Do you have a level of outrage at Hamas itself? It doesn't seem like propaganda at all. It just seems like news. Because it's coming out of the words, out of the mouths of supposedly objective journalists, it just appears to be, just appears to be journalism, it just appears to be news. That is how PR works. The best PR, you get someone else to say your words. Uh, actually, the question for me, um, I've never been able to kind of answer it properly, the question for me is whether the so-called journalists, means that does Jake Tapper know what he's doing? Does David Goffrey know what he's doing? Does he know that he's simply mouthing Israeli propaganda? Or do they really think they're doing journalism? Are they so deluded? That's, that's always my question. Are they, like, are they essentially evil on the one hand? They know what they're doing. <laughs> they're gonna do it anyway for whatever reason. Or are they just so stupid that they don't know that they are being manipulated in this way? Now, I've ne I actually don't know uh, the answer to that question. Uh, it actually would be an interesting research question to do. But the latest Israeli attacks, let me turn now to the, to the, to the, to the current. The latest Israeli attacks on Gaza in the summer of 2021 indicates, in fact, that there might be something new that is happening now outside the world of corporate broadcast media. The Israeli bombardment of Gaza and the events of Sheikh Jarrah elicited reactions we had not seen before. While the bulk of the coverage, especially on TV, followed the usual pattern of blaming Palestinians for the violence, there were really, for the first time, significant alternative voices being heard that were pro-Palestinian. A new generation of Palestinian-American voices have put themselves into position where the mainstream media feels as though they have to invite them on from another perspective. For example, the New York Times uh, had an op-ed from Youssef Manir. And, the C and CNN's Christian Anapur uh, had on uh, Nora Arakat as a guest, where Nora argued uh, for the legitimate right of Palestinians, including Hamas, to resist the colonial oppression. And Professor um, uh, 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 Rashid Khalidi, the most kind of eminent historian of the Palestinian quest for emancipation, has been an important voice in the public domain. Something changed when we were, when I watched the media coverage pretty cl closely. Something started to change, at least on the margins. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for this, I think, um, including the decades-long work of people of, of, of uh, websites like Electronic Intifada and Phil Wise's work with uh, with Mondo Wise, um, <laughs> as well as the activists associated as well as the activists associated with the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement who have carried on doing their work even though they are under constant threat. Uh, there are also the new powerful voices of elected Palestinian-American officials such as Rashida Tlaib. Uh, there is now a debate within the Democratic Party which didn't exist before. And actually, I think that the person who, who deserves a lot of credit for this is Bernie Sanders who in 2006... <laughs> who in 2016 at the, one of the debates, um, the primary debates, actually mentioned uh, Palestine and Palestine human rights uh, in, the, in the, the primary, uh, in, the, in the debate in, in, in Brooklyn. Uh, there are, as Radhika said, there are uh, hundreds of campus organizations, camp there's hundreds of students, hundreds of SJP uh, chapters around the country. And I think increasingly, the visible links between the Black Lives Matter movement 
and the quest for Palestinian emancipation has been very, very important, especially for younger generations. In fact, it's really interesting to see how you know, liberal Zionists get themselves into knots, on the one hand, trying to support Black Lives Matter, which, they, which almost everyone does, and at the same time trying to deny that Palestinian human rights has anything to do with those same movements. So a lot of things, I think, I think actually are changing. Um, there are also the widespread, uh, the unprecedented reports from B'Tselem, from Human Rights Watch, and Amnesty International that all use the A word, all use apartheid. And make no mistake, Israeli officials are scared stiff about this, especially in terms of what will happen internationally. At the start of the year, at the start of the year, even before the amnesty report, uh, Yair Lapid, uh, Israel's foreign minister, said, this was at the start of 2022, he said, we think that in the coming year, there will be debate that is unprecedented in its venom and in its radioactivity around the words, Israel is an apartheid state. It will be a tangible threat. Okay, that, that, that is the, that's, that's the words of someone who is scared about what is happening. Um, uh, I mean, as, as Gideon said, but there may not be a lot of discussion about this within Israel, maybe ignored, but it's not ignored around the rest of the world, and it's going to, I think, change the debate. But the major, uh, uses, I, the major change, I think, has been in the use of social media. Although, again, as Radhika mentioned, there's been significant censorship in this as well. Uh, but for the most part, social media has been freed from the usual close corporate controls. And it's managed to tell another story. Millions of people have been able to share images and videos that define the situation in a different way. Actresses like Viola Davis, uh, like Emma Watson, have used a significant social media presence to allow different narratives into the frame. And social media has succeeded in giving a face to an increasingly racist and rabid Zionism that I don't think was possible before. There was the viral video that went out of the Zionist occupier of the Sheikh, one of the Sheikh Jarrah houses, that actually gave, this is what Zionism looks like, this is what Zionism sounds like. Actually, mostly what it sounds like is right-wing Americans from Brooklyn. Uh, occupying the, the, the occupying land, they, right? But they gave they gave a voice to that. Jacob, you know this is not your house. Yes, but if I go, you don't go back. So what's the problem? Why are you yelling at me? I didn't do this. I didn't do this. But you it's you're... easy to yell at me, but I didn't do this. Okay, people who know nothing about house occupations, people who, nothing, who knew nothing about Zionism now suddenly had images, they suddenly had stories, and they suddenly had a face that they could put to it. I imagine most of you have seen that video before. I just said it went, it went viral, uh, and it went viral on social media. So I think there is some, something, something is shifting. Uh, I think public opinion is shifting. Um, and perhaps most surprisingly, perhaps most surprisingly, there's even been a breakthrough on Fox News, where Geraldo Rivera, I know, it's, it's a shock, <laughs> where Geraldo Rivera astonished everyone by merely stating 
the stark reality of what was happening in Gaza. And I want you to look at the faces of the other people who are on the screen when you see this clip. Um, Geraldo, it, it sounds like you are sympathetic to Tlaib's argument here. I am indeed, Martha. I think that people have to recognize what Gaza Strip is. It's one of the most menacing, melancholy places uh, on earth that I've ever reported from. It's a 20-mile uh, long strip of desert by the sea. Two million Palestinians trapped inside by a brutal blockade enforced by Egypt on the southwest, Israel, every place else. It's a crowded cesspool, highest unemployment on earth, over 50%. Everyone and everything going into and out of Gaza is controlled by Israel. Electricity, fuel, airspace, ports, cell phone service, even who gets to farm those meager fields they have. It's effectively one of the world's largest prison camps and it's being bombed with bombs supplied by the United States of America. It's outrageous that we gave Israel these hundreds of millions of dollars worth of weapons without insisting on a ceasefire now. Why not a ceasefire now? We have dozens of Palestinian children who have been killed in the last week with American bombs. I have no proposed Why solution that, to this conflict. I have no proposed solution, better minds than mine. Maybe General Jack Keane can help and floundered, uh, frustrated by this complexity. I know this though, Martha, and I want our audience, to, the fact that the United States of America is providing Israel many of the weapons Israel is using today to kill Palestinian civilians without even demanding a ceasefire, Tlaib is right. That makes us complicit in an ongoing crime against humanity. That's on Fox News. <laughs> and it's, it's been delivered by someone who knows how television works. Someone who knows you don't stop talking. Someone who knows exactly how to speak in, in sound bites. So even Fox News now, I wouldn't say standard, shift, but there are breakthroughs here and there. And public opinion, I think, is starting to shift, especially generationally. Um, and I think the reason for this, one of the reasons for why the, the shift is happening, is that people are more educated about the context. I don't think it was an accident that what happened in the summer of 2021 was connected to the events of Sheikh Jarrah. Suddenly, the Hamas rockets, which is normally where the story starts, suddenly, for millions of people, that was not where the story started. The story started in the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, and suddenly the context starts to change. That's the great worry that Frank Luntz talked about. When the, when the focus shifts, discussion shifts to territory, when the focus shifts to occupation, when the focus shifts to eviction, when the focus shifts to house demolition, then public opinion shifts also. Um, it's always tough to, anticipate, to, to say what's going to happen in the future, but I think it's going to be very difficult to get the genie back in the bottle. Uh, especially for younger generations. For a long time, the propaganda of the Israel lobby had the characteristics of a Gordian knot. You know what a Gordian knot is. Something that is so powerful and tightly uh, intertwined that it seemed impossible to unravel. But we have to remember there are two parts of the lesson of Confucius. One is the importance of rectifying the language. The other is that there is nothing natural about this rectification, that the categories of language do not fall fully formed from heaven, but are created by human beings. And therefore, they can be changed. Therefore, they can be struggled over. Therefore, new categories of resistance can be carved out. The categories of culture are a site of contestation. They are a place where struggle can take place. The Gordian knot of Israeli propaganda will not be cut through with one cut. I know that's what Alexander the Great did or supposedly did. That's not going to happen with, with this. If that, is, if that is what Israeli propaganda is, we will have to pick at the threads one at a time until they fray and break. I believe we are at the beginning of this process. Uh, there's no guarantee that we will be successful. 
politics is not about guarantees. Um, and, and even if you can shift public opinion, which I think is starting to happen, there is no guarantee that elites will enact policy that works in its own interest. If that was the case, then we would have you know, uh, universal health care now, which is you know, powerful, which is supported by most people. We would have you know, real movement on climate change. We would have more money spent on education. There's no guarantee that changes in public opinion will lead to changes in policy, but it is a prerequisite. As I said, there's never a guarantee in politics. But I've been more hopeful in the last six months than I've, or in the last few years than I have before. Uh, and I think that even though there's no guarantee, um, I think at least we are now in the game. Thank you. What you just heard were the remarks of Saad Jolly, professor of communication at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the founder and executive director of the Media Education Foundation, speaking on the topic, are U.S. news organizations getting better or worse in their Middle East reporting? He delivered those remarks at the annual 2022 Israel Lobby Conference held at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on March 4, 2022, co-hosted by the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs and the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. For more information on that conference, visit www.israellobbycon.org. And that does it for the show today. Thanks for listening. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Until we meet next week, peace on earth. <music>